Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is the Booker-nominated Welsh author of three novels and many more short stories. Born and raised in South Wales, she wrote her first book as a young girl on her grandfather's computer about rabbits named Flopsy and Fluffytail. Since then, her writing has matured somewhat, with her debut novel The Water Cure, a dystopian feminist story about three sisters raised on an isolated island, published in 2018 to critical acclaim. Since then, she's taught writing workshops, completed several writers' residences, and published two more novels. The latest is Cursed Bread. It's a darkly sexual story set in post-war rural France. Sophie McIntosh, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to, to finally meet you. Um, your career has, has been really, really interesting. And I, I want to go right back to the start, actually, because you were born in South Wales. Did you speak Welsh as a child? Yeah, I actually did um, all my schooling in Welsh up to the age of 18. Um, I went to a completely Welsh school. Yeah, so it's kind of, that was always a element, I think, in writing, because um, I was kind of speaking it every day with school. I was speaking it with my sister. My parents don't actually speak it, but yes. Yeah, speaking with my cousins and my sister. And how do you think that influenced your writing? I think it's sort of given a, a kind of musicality because there's a lot of emphasis on you know singing and recitation in school. We would do I Sethford, so it's kind of there was a really strong like cultural you know emphasis on poetry and language and you know at the time I kind of really resented having to memorize like 10 Welsh poems for my Welsh literature GCSE but it does sort of teach you a lot about how things sound and like how language works and opens up a lot of possibilities. Mm, because poetry was really your first love wasn't it? Mm, yes I started writing poetry in my teens that's sort of how I got into writing really. I mean for many of us many people write poetry in their teens but it is truly execrable. <laughs> yours clearly yours clearly wasn't and I, and I wonder what what sets that apart? Because it is part of the teen soul, isn't it, that we feel feel we can pour our angst out in, in rhyming couplets. Yeah, it's strange. I think I was always really drawn to music as well. And yeah, poetry to me just sort of seemed like an extension of that or a kind of way of merging my two loves of reading and writing and music too. And I think I wrote some pretty bad poet poems, to be honest. But yeah, I won a, I won a place in a Oxford summer school when I was 17 with a poem. And I think that kind of, I suppose that made me think more about how I could move forward with that stuff. Mm. Well, let's talk about your first book. And I'm talking about the one you wrote at the age of six. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that. It was such a funny... I, mean, I still remember it, which is, you know, I just remember sitting at this computer and my granddad saying, you know, this is a word processor. You can write as many words as you want. And I was just sort of in awe of it. And I was like, I can write a thousand pages. I can write a book. And I think I wrote about one sentence and I was like, this is quite difficult, isn't it? I was like, what's a flopsy? And yeah, what do the rabbits actually do? <laughs> I was like, hmm, my first experience of uh, trying to write a novel. <laughs> Something has to happen. <laughs> but what? <laughs> and you wrote again another book at 17. Oh, yeah. I think I got about... 10 or 15,000 words into it, which actually is not so bad, I think, for a teenager. But again, I kind of just really ran out of steam. That was a kind of, I think that's probably a problem for most authors before they figure out how to actually finish a book is that idea of, you know, you kind of get really excited by the idea and then you end up sort of fizzling out a bit. Yeah. Um, and why, why do you think that happens? Is it because we haven't thought through the idea properly or it just didn't really have legs to begin with? I think I had a lot of romantic ideas about what writing entailed and actually having to sort of 
think about the novel as, I guess, like a process and a, a something with a structure, because I kind of always assumed, and I think a lot of people do, that, you know, pure inspiration would get me through and I didn't need to think about plots or think about, you know, kind of measuring things out. So, yeah, doing that, I think, was... Well, figuring out that actually I had to think about it in a more logical way was really important for me. Mm, because, of course, that is a, a hugely big part of writing, is that you do mm. have to think about the bigger picture. Yeah, completely. Even if you are kind of writing something quite, I wouldn't say plotless, I wouldn't say co-presence plotless, but you know, something that's more kind of um, language-based or form-based, something without kind of a traditional plot or kind of traditional structure, I think you still really need to think about like what's going to happen and, you know, just the beginning, the middle and the end, essentially. Did you always think you'd be a writer? Um, I always hoped to be. I, I, well, when I was younger, I kind of was thinking more about being... I always kind of wanted to be something in the arts, a photographer, a fashion designer, and then I thought more about writing. I kind of was thinking about journalism. I think I just never really thought about it as an actual job. <laughs> I kind of assumed I'd have to do other things. So it's kind of amazing to be a writer. Because, <laughs> mm. I mean, you did do quite a lot of other things. In your 20s, you were doing various jobs. Mm. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I was actually thinking about it on the way here because I used to work um, in Fitzrovia. I was working for a tech PR company and that was sort of my first grown-up job. But I was waitressing, I tutored, you know, I've done, I worked in a supermarket when I was a teenager. I kind of done a few different things. But yeah, when I sort of got into tech PR, um, then I sort of got into social media marketing and was sort of on that trajectory for a bit. Um, And then I did go freelance with that and now I sort of freelance as a copywriter sometimes too. And so were you writing while you were doing those jobs? Yeah, completely. I was writing in the mornings, in the evenings, on the weekends. I actually found it quite freeing, I think, because especially, you know, having the sort of stability of an income and then also the time to, well, making the time to write. But I didn't feel like I had pressure on myself to kind of meet any sort of particular time frame or deadline, Mm. which was, yeah, helpful. Because a lot of wannabe writers say to me, I do it, but I just don't have time. I have a full-time job. But of course, if you really feel motivated to write, you make that time. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's so challenging. And I was in a I was in a position where, you know, my job wasn't that challenging and I don't have any children. So I kind of could carve out the time for myself. Even now, on my last full-time contract, I was finding it harder to sort of write around that. And I was like, I've done this before. Like, why is this difficult? And like, life really does get in the way. <laughs> but I think doing like a little bit is better than nothing anyway. Mm. But it also informs the writing to a degree, doesn't it? The more real world experience you have, surely that's beneficial to what finally appears on the page. I think so, for sure. I mean, I'm quite like a social person. I'm definitely not sort of locking myself in a room and just writing in a vacuum, like everything that kind of happens. You know, you can walk down the street and hear a conversation. You can see an image. It's all really helpful, I think. And I actually kind of, I think very fondly of these lunchtimes I used to have at my last job where I would kind of, take well when I was writing the water cure and I would run with my laptop into a Starbucks and I would have like an hour and I'd get like a big coffee and I'd just sit there and write and then run back and it was like my kind of little secret you know my little my little time that I'd carved out. How wonderful. <laughs> uh, short stories you were publishing before you actually published your, your first novel. Yeah I was writing a few short stories and um, sometimes I find them harder than novels I think because I don't know I'm trying to sort of get back to it now and it is a really different energy I think something working on a really long thing that you're kind of chipping away at is easier in some ways than having to create a sort of complete shorter object if that makes sense. Mm. Why, why do you think that is because that's the sentiment I've heard expressed often. I think it's something about the sense of momentum with a novel and you, you know, you can kind of go back and make it better. Um, and with a short story, it's always, I suppose you don't always know if the idea has legs or it just, yeah, there's so many ways that you can approach it. And I think also just the idea of 
I was talking about it with another writer recently and having to have so many ideas. <laughs> like I have to have like, if I'm going to write five short stories, I'm going to have to have five ideas. But one novel is one long idea with lots of ideas within it. And I think I love that idea of, you know, something longer with lots of things kind of coming out of it and digressing and figuring out all those bits. That's what really appeals to me in mm. a novel. Rejection is something that all writers experience. And I would say possibly more so with short story writers because you're, you're much more prolific in what you're, you're sending out there. Tell me how that works for you. Does it feel like a personal rejection or is this something you've learned to cope with? Over the years, I think I've really learned to cope with it and I've got much of, a much thicker skin. I think I've just really realised as well from my experience as a reader too that writing is so subjective. <laughs> um, something is really not going to be for everyone and that's completely fine and just sort of, you can't really be bothered by it. You have to sort of move on. And is it a learning experience? Definitely. I think you're always constantly learning and maybe you can even get into sort of bad habits with writing or, you know, like it's good to be pushing yourself and trying new things. So I kind of, I try and see rejection as an opportunity to think, well, what didn't actually work here and how could I sort of improve? Mm. Now, you wrote countless drafts of your first book, The Water Cure. Yeah, so many. <laughs> I think probably like 60 or 70 even. I don't know. I, I've kind of lost count. That's extraordinary. Tell me more about that experience because you've written the book, it's down, it's on paper. And then what, you do the whole thing again? Well, it did by sort of the end draft. It wasn't really like completely rewriting it, thank goodness, because I don't think I could have, I mean, I don't think anyone could rewrite a book 60 times. It was more kind of just changing like final things, but everything was like every word in that book really sort of earned its place. The first draft is completely unrecognisable to what the final product is. Like I changed everything. I think I maybe kept about 2,000 words, if that's... I changed setting, I changed voice, I changed, you know, time period. So, yeah, I think I just, I'm a very iterative writer. I like having something and then rewriting it, redrafting it, tweaking it. I'm not someone who remotely gets it right the first time around, unfortunately. How hard is it to get rid of words that you at one point thought were marvellous? Over the years, I've kind of got better at it, but it is, a, it is a bit of a wrench. What I actually do is I have a big folder called like cut bits I never really look in, but if I have to get rid of something, I cut and paste and put it in there and it's like this massive sprawling document. And then it's like, I'm not actually getting rid of it. I'm just sort of putting it there for later and I can always kind of put it back. And, you know, 99% of the time I don't put it back. So, yeah, it's almost sort of tricking yourself a bit. It was a pretty traumatic time when that novel was published personally. Mm. Yeah, it was um, yeah, it was difficult because my uh, former partner was diagnosed with cancer like a, a week a week before it came out. I think, yeah, so that that was quite challenging to cope with. But in, in a way, I think having the book come out and having this like lovely thing to focus on as well, I think it was very comforting for both of us. Mm. Uh, and of, the, of course, it went on to be long listed for the Booker. Mm. Yeah, that, I mean that was still the most surreal moment of my life. <laughs> How has it affected your writing or you personally? I think, you know, personally, it's given me it's given me a lot more time and space. It's allowed me to kind of put writing more at the centre of my life. It's given me a massive confidence boost because I think, you know, when when the Watio came out, you never know how a book would be received and having so much attention on it was, you know, incredible. Opening it up to a whole new audience of readers just really gave me a lot of confidence in myself and I've been lucky that it hasn't really... I haven't really felt like pressure, only from myself maybe, to kind of you know, to, to keep writing, but I haven't felt any pressure from like my publishers or anything, which is great. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the book, The Water Cure. 
Um, so it's about three sisters who live on an island and it's set in a climate-changed Wales in the near future and they have been raised apart from the rest of the world and then they've never seen men before. They've been told men are toxic their entire life and then some men wash up on the island and from there the kind of the dynamics change and yeah. <laughs> it sounds absolutely fascinating. Clearly the book of judges agreed. Uh, you've also taught literature, you've taught writing at various places. Yeah, so I taught a module at Warwick University, which is actually where I did my undergraduate degree. So it was quite nice to, yeah, return to the kind of creative writing programme. Under Maureen Freely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, who's so wonderful. Yeah, I mean, she's absolutely amazing. And the whole programme is like really nurturing and incredible. So it was, it was, it was really, really wonderful to return back like 10 years on and having like published a book. And I've also done things with Arvin, which is, you know, a really amazing foundation. And they do incredible courses. I've worked with sort of Faber um, Academy. I've done... And, and Guardian Masterclasses too. So, yeah, I, I really love the process of teaching. I think they're really rewarding and it's just, like, amazing to sort of talk to students and, you know, hear their ideas as well. Can you tell automatically this person can or can't write? I don't really believe in can or can't write. I think, I mean, obviously some people have more talent than others, but I think, you know, writing is kind of a skill that you can practice and you can have as long as you kind of are willing to have awareness of your work and awareness of what's not working and what is, I think you can kind of really improve. Um, I wasn't like the best in my course at uni or anything. I was kind of, I was probably like middling, but I was the one who sort of was very, I don't know, I I kept doing it essentially after I graduated and I just was maybe a bit pig-headed about it and just like wanted to keep on going. And yeah, and in the end I was like, well, that was kind of, that was more helpful to me than being naturally talented, I guess. Right, just just slog on. Put words yeah, yeah. on the page. <laughs> Put words on the page. Yeah. So unromantic, but yeah. yeah. Did you have a second novel problem? I don't think so. I, I think I'd had the idea for a while. Maybe I put a bit too much pressure on myself because of the book stuff to kind of get one written super fast. But I also... I had this idea and I just felt so compelled to do it. And I think as well, because it was that really traumatic time, I, again, the focus of like creating something I found really helpful. Getting back into writing felt really comforting. It felt like, you know, writing is a massive source of comfort for me. It's a source of joy. It's my favourite thing in the world. Sorry to be so honest. (laughs) Um, So, you know, kind of getting back into it felt really right and really good. And that book was Blue Ticket. Tell us about that. So Blue Ticket is set in a world where it's decided whether women can be mothers or not based on a lottery system. So you pull a ticket when you're a teenager and you pull a white ticket or a blue ticket and white ticket um, women can have children and blue ticket cannot. Um, we follow the heroine, Kala, who picks a blue ticket, but she decides she would like to have a baby. She sort of starts to feel this maternal pull and she ends up going on the run and sort of pursuing her dream of becoming a mother. And um, we sort of follow her on this strange landscape as she yeah, embarks on this road trip. Mm-hmm. So lots of lots of women in your books, lots of lots of feminist tropes coming through, I guess you would say. Yeah, I think I'm just interested... Oh, I'm really interested in women's stories. I'm really interested in, you know, those experiences and stuff. And I think with, you know, with Blue Ticket, it was quite like a personal book as well. I was thinking a lot about motherhood and seeing, you know, my friends become mothers. And so it was kind of a way of working those things out rather than making, I guess, like kind of grand sweeping statements. It was felt it felt a lot like, you know, these are these are issues that many women are grappling with and, you know, thinking about and coming to terms with. Mm. So, yeah, it felt sort of personal in that way. I wonder if you've ever written or thought about writing a novel in Welsh. 
I have thought about it, but you know what? My Welsh is so rusty for someone who spoke it every day for, you know, 18 to 19 years. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, maybe I should have a go. Maybe I'll try a short story first. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I haven't really read a novel in Welsh for a long time. Are there many? I'm a bit out of touch with that. I remember reading as a teenager, I'd read a lot of Welsh novels, but those were kind of often translations or like um, sort of young adult books. There was one I really loved called um, Pam Redu, which translates roughly to Why Me God. <laughs> um, but that was also a TV show. But yeah, the book, I remember reading that. <laughs> yeah, because the Welsh authorities have been really, really proactive in, in encouraging speaking of the language. Yeah, completely. And it's so important, I think. And if I ever have children, like I would, I would love them to kind of grow up bilingual. Like it's been an amazing thing for me and my sister. Um, she's actually incredible at lots of languages now, which I think is comes from speaking two languages at such an early age. And it is amazing to sort of have that connection to, you know, your heritage and stuff. Mm. And the Welsh language itself, we, I at least, tend to think of it uh, very much connected to singing. And that is something you also do. Yeah, I, it is a really beautiful language and it is, like, yeah, like I said, very musical. And I used to sing a lot at school and, yeah, I sang in my early 20s as well. And you I, even released an EP. I did, yeah. <laughs> I did release an EP when I think I was 19 or 20. But, yeah, I kind of I went to uni, so I didn't end up pursuing that really. But I did... It was, a, it was a nice couple of months doing some sort of, sort of gigs and being on the radio and stuff. Yeah. I have to ask you about horoscopes and astrology because mm. I know that that's something you're really into. Tell us more. Yeah, I sort of got quite into yeah, thinking about it. Do you know what? I think it was around the time of the water cure or maybe before the water cure when I was kind of going through quite a lot of writing rejection and I found it just incredibly comforting thinking about, you know, can astrology sort of tell me what my life's going to be. I have no idea. I feel quite directionless and is writing going to work for me? So I kind of got into it in that way. I'm not so into it um, these days, maybe. But I've kind of, yeah, I think it's, it is interesting, that idea of how, you know, can we tell things about ourselves from, from these elements? I've got into, like, tarot recently as well, which I think, you know, it's not identical, but it's kind of in the same ballpark of just looking elsewhere for kind of, yeah, thinking how things can fit into each other. Or that our destiny is predetermined. Yeah, that kind of thing. But I definitely, maybe I wouldn't feel so into astrology if I wasn't a Scorpio, because I think Scorpio is like, obviously I'm biased because I'm one, because I'm like, it's quite, it's quite a cool one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I must admit that I do get my horoscope sent to me by email every day. And what it is for me is just, I don't believe that my destiny is written in the stars, but what it does is make me think about the day ahead and the suggestions that are contained within that horoscope and how how perhaps I might concentrate on whatever it's talking about that day. Mm. Kind of, I suppose, some guidelines? Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a little hor horoscope app and every day it sends me a push notification with a little snippet and, you know, they're often quite cryptic, but they are useful. They can kind of just be a little reminder, I guess, to check in and, yeah, what, like you said, like focus on something particular. But also I feel like sometimes they can ruin my day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, saying all that, but I had a friend whose mother had a newspaper column of horoscopes and she used to get him to write it half the time and he'd do it specifically to attack friends who he knew were various <laughs> star signs. So, I, think, I mean, I think there, there's quite a lot of charlatism out there. Yeah, maybe, I think. But like, like with anything, it's kind of... It, Sometimes it can be just comforting to have these structures and comforting to just, yeah, have a reminder to check in. and Yeah. Uh, let's talk about your latest book because I'm finding it so chilling. It's kind of this air of menace, but also it's very, very erotic. So Curse Spread, it's in, it's in France. Tell us more. 
So it's set in France in 1951, just after the Second World War, and it follows a baker's wife called Elodie who becomes very fascinated with a new arrival to the town, a woman called Violet and her husband, the ambassador. And they're very glamorous and she becomes quickly drawn into their world and develops a sort of obsession with both of them. Mm. There's a bit in the book that I really love. As you say, Elodie is the baker's wife and my partner is a baker. And I actually found this bit I had to read out aloud to him. And I wonder if you'd read it for us now. I can admit that in those days I was sometimes jealous of the dough my husband put his hands into, worked so tenderly and tirelessly with, up to the elbows. I can admit now that his bread really was the best. There was such beauty in breaking it open hot from the oven and the steam pouring out in feeling your appetite worrying at you and knowing it would soon be sated, the astonishing fact that, living as we did in this new time of peace and plenty, we might never have to feel truly hungry again. He was on a constant mission to perfect it. You might have said it was his life's work. You might have said this not entirely seriously, but he was very serious about it. I was jealous too of the purity of his focus, the incremental moves towards one faultless loaf. I did have to read that to Baker Bay, who recognised himself in it. <laughs> um, but it is that the book get, is is very kind of physical. There's, there's a lot of eroticism in there. Yeah, I was thinking about kind of, I guess the reasons behind it. I think you know, one of the one of the reasons I was kind of I hit upon was that I did write it in lockdown. I couldn't touch anyone when writing this book except for you know, my former partner who I was living with. But you know, it was, it was, there's a real sense of claustrophobia, and I'm, I'm kind of only now realizing how much the actual you know the act of writing it in a, at a time when I was almost completely isolated has really fed into it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, one really gets that from the book, and also that kind of character. To Development. We, we get to know Elodie so well, and also Violet. Mm. Tell us more about Violet. Yeah, she is an interesting character. I actually wrote um, an early draft of the book, again, many drafts, in Violet's voice, and it was... I had to abandon it halfway through. I think I got, like, a full, like, about twenty-five or 30,000 words in, and then... I just realised the book wasn't working. Like, told from her perspective, it wasn't compelling enough. But as, like, as a character that you observe, as a character what, that things can be projected onto and sort of studied in the way that Elodie does, she suddenly, you know, she becomes more fascinating than she is and the kind of the book came alive. Um, so she's kind of a mysterious character. She's very glamorous. You know, she's got a dark past, possibly... She's very in love with her husband. Um, she kind of is dissatisfied and she represents to Elodie, the baker's wife, you know, this incredible kind of life of, like, desire and beauty and, you know, glamour that, like, Elodie has never experienced. Mm. And I wonder if that that sort of exercise of, of writing in Violet's voice was something that was incredibly useful to make her, for her to read as this fully rounded character. I mean, I know that, that many teachers of writing say you need to know the character of everyone inside out almost to have written it in their voice first before they all come together on the page yeah it was in incredibly useful to have more of a sense on her like to almost have this sort of other book you know or you know to see the story from her perspective and I think one thing that it gave me as well like she is a character who has a sort of ruthlessness and emptiness at her heart. And it was like only by kind of, I guess, writing the story from her point of view that I kind of tapped into that. So it was definitely useful. I think I'm a very big proponent of the idea that, you know, nothing you write is wasted. It's all getting you towards something. And I tell this to students all the time, you know, it's really important to write around the story and to give yourself a fuller understanding of what's happening, even if you don't, you know, put it in the book or use it at all. Mm. I mean, your writing is often very dark. Would you call yourself a dark person? 
I don't think so. I'm kind of like, I would even say, you could even say I'm bubbly. <laughs> I don't know, maybe not bubbly. Um, I'm quite a lot optimistic and... Yeah, I, I, maybe I put all my darkness into my into my bags. I think I might I might be surprising when I remember actually having an interview with someone and they were like, "Oh, I wasn't expecting Sophie McIntosh to be like quite fun <laughs> <laughs> um, or like cheerful." You know, I was like, "Yeah, I think I've just always been quite interested, I guess, in in the darker side of human nature." If that doesn't sound too pretentious, but um, you know, even as a I was a quite a goth teenager, I just sort of yeah, just like really interested in in how I guess people um, yeah the places that our mind can take us and yeah <laughs> so I mean we are seeing this kind of rise really I feel of sort of what would you call it feminist dystopian fiction mm. do you think I think so or maybe there was definitely a few books a few years ago I think you know it was, it was sort of everyone was sort of seeing it as a kind of a trend yeah I, I think it was it's an interesting way to sort of um, grapple with um, issues of our time and to sort of you know like with the water cure and blue ticket I almost saw them as sort of thought experiments you know it's kind of like a little you can invent a world and have sort of do a petri dish kind of experiment in there and you know you, you can control the conditions and just really invent things and see kind of how a theoretical scenario would play out in a world that's not ours. Mm. Do you feel that you're writing for women or maybe to offer men a perspective on women? I like to think I'm writing for everyone. I think, you've, you know, it, I'm not trying to offer a particular perspective, really. I just kind of, at the end of the day, I, like, I want to create a great story. And I'm just, it's just for me, maybe because writing is like quite a personal thing often, like, yeah, drawn to these kind of female-led stories. Yeah. And what's next? Working my fourth novel at the moment, or kind of attempting to, and yeah, I'm sort of trying to get a bit more into short fiction as well. But I, I always find that when I start writing a novel, that kind of grabs me a bit. So yeah, I'm working on that at the moment, and it's a love story, which is a different, a different thing for me. <laughs> but still, probably will end up being quite dark. But yeah, it's nice to have something else to focus on. Even you know, it, it's really exciting to have Curse Bread coming out, and but I always like to have, I think, something else in reserve, I guess, or something else kind of to focus on. Yeah. Well, if it's anything like Curse Bread, it's going to be marvellous. Uh, Sophie McIntosh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Curse Bread by Sophie McIntosh is out now. It's published by Hamish Hamilton. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>